Amen to that. Hey, church, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. You guys, you can take a seat. Uh, if you're in here in Theater One with us, if you're watching online, um, there's a ton of people watching this. I know it doesn't feel like it if you're in here, but there's a whole group of people out in Souk uh, that are gathering together to worship out there. There's people in their homes. Uh, there's people who are going to watch this after the fact on our YouTube page. Uh, so no matter who you are, where you are, when you are, uh, my name is Chris and want to extend uh, a special welcome uh, to you and just say, hey, it's great to have you. As Matt already articulated, uh, our heart is that you would feel like you're a part of the family. And a simple way to do that is no matter, again, where you're at, when you're at, just simply text your name to the number on the screen and uh, one of our team members will follow up with you. Uh, now, if you have a Bible, grab it. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can download one on your phone or you can pick up one. There's one at the table uh, as you walked in this morning. Those are free. They're our gift to you. Go to Matthew chapter 18. We love to teach through books of the Bible here at West Village. We've been going through a series on the Gospel of Matthew for some time. Uh, and I want to start just with a question, just to kind of prime the pump here a little bit. Uh, have you ever lost something that is important to you? Something significant, you've lost it, didn't know where it was. Could have been your keys, right? Who's lost your keys before? Throw a hand up if you lost your keys. Okay. Lost a wallet. Who's lost a wallet, right? Yeah. Have you ever lost a kid? It's like, that's next level important. But yeah, if you have a kid, you've lost it. If you don't have a kid, you're like, how could you lose a kid? You only say that because you don't have a kid. Once you have a kid, you will lose your kid. Uh, shout out to Taylor and Addie. They just had their little baby, little baby Mason. They're going to lose him. Andrew and Shannon Hawes just had little baby Ben. They're going to lose him or lose Isla. It's, it's real. It happens. Uh, we have lost our kids. Okay, so here's the story. I'll give you the quick lost our kids story. So Kelly's, my wife's sister, was over visiting. Uh, she at that time had four kids. At that time, we had three kids. They now have five. We have four. So imagine this, seven kids under the age of five. Like, check us into a mental institution, please. And obviously, we're not sane because we decide we're going to go out. Like, when you have that many kids at that age, you're like, no, we're going to stay home. We're never going to leave because it would be foolish to leave. But we decide we're going to go out. And so we decide we're going to go and get all the kids out, and we're going to go out for a day. And so how do you do this? Like, how do you get all these kids out? So one by one, here's what we're doing. We're like basically manufacture line, try to get the kids out, right? Pass the kid down, put a shoe on, tie it, boom, kick him out the door. And we get through all the kids, all seven of them. We go outside. It's time to leave. And we're missing one. It's Tyler. He's big now, but back then he was little, and we can't find him anywhere. We go to the backyard, he's not there. We look around the corner, he's not there. We call out his name, he's not there. Where is he? Now, if you're a parent, you understand what's happening in this moment, right? What's happening in this moment? Fear floods your heart, unless you don't really love your kids, and then you're like, sweet, one last mouth. Just kidding, just kidding. Anxiety, like you have all this rush of emotion fills you, and you're frantically searching for your child. So that's what we do. We start, I remember distinctly, like, like, what has happened? Like, we go, our brain goes to the worst possible place. And add to the fact that at this time, we lived in Surrey. Like, Surrey. Like, people get shot in Surrey. That's where we lived. And so I go running down the road. I'm calling his name. I'm yelling. Like, it felt like three hours later, but it was probably, like, three minutes later. Kelly calls out, Chris, it's okay. We found him. And there's, like, this moment of oh, relief that sets in when you realize that he's okay. And so I come running back towards the house, and Tyler had gotten into our van, which was 
parked in the visitor parking spot around the corner, and he had just learned how, learned how to get himself into a seat and buckle himself in, and so he opened up the sliding door on the van, got himself into the seat, buckled himself in, and he was just sitting there beaming ear to ear with pride, like, aren't you proud of me, mom and dad? And we just grabbed him, hugged him, held him, because oh, we have our son back. Well, Jesus is going to give us a parable this morning. He's going to tell us a parable, and it's a parable that is a lot like that. It reveals to us the very essence of the heart of God for his lost children. So Matthew chapter 18, let's jump in here. Picking up in verse 10, here is what, here is what Jesus says. See that you do not despise some of these little ones. So let's just stop there for a second. Uh, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus has been having this insider conversation all through 16, 17, and 18, really, with his disciples. But in Matthew chapter 18, uh, in particular, Jesus has been having a conversation that started with a question where the disciples asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so Jesus has been painting a picture for us of the kingdom of heaven. And he uses this analogy that he's been continuing to use each and every week for the last several weeks of little ones. Now here he's not talking about little ones in the sense of actual children. He's using a spiritual metaphor. What he's saying is, uh, those who are in my kingdom are like little ones. They're like the ones who recognize that they are like little children. Not little children in the sense that they check their brains at the door or faith like a little child, but they recognize just like children have great need so too do we have great need, that we recognize that apart from Jesus, we, we can't save ourselves, we can't do anything on our own, we need God to intervene in our lives because we're broken and we need someone to save us. And so Jesus is going to continue with that theme here. Now look at what he says. He says, see that you do not despise some of these little ones, second half of verse 10, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. I'm going to read it again, okay? Because there's a couple important things I want you to get. So just put your pretty little eyes on the page or on the screen or whatever. For I tell you that their angels, the little one's angels in heaven, always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, some people have heard this verse and they've said, oh, look at that. We've got a verse to, uh, to prove that we all have guardian angels. Now, I'm not going to say that this verse is not saying that, but I don't think we can delineate that. Uh, unequivocally from this verse. But what we can understand from this verse is that within the angel realm, there is some form of hierarchy of angels. So if you go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6, in Isaiah chapter 6, we get a, a picture of the th throne room of God. We get this picture where Isaiah kind of paints, uh, uh, sketches for us what it looks like when the curtain is pulled back and we're inside the throne room of God. And he paints this picture for us of angels. Now, when you think of angel, you're thinking, if you're like me, right, you're thinking uh, Philadelphia cream cheese commercial from the you know, late 90s, fat naked baby on, heart, uh, on clouds, rather, playing harps, floating around, like just you know, eating grapes. Like That's what you think of. That's not the picture Isaiah paints for us. It's like a thunderous picture. It's, it's almost a violent picture. He talks about these, these angelic beings, like, almost like they're beasts, and we can't really fathom what they're like. But one of the things that he uh, does to describe them is he says that they have six wings. Now, why do they have six wings? I mean, I don't know anything about flying or, or angels for that matter, but one would think that you only need two wings to fly. I think that's how it works. Again, I've never flown and I don't have wings, but I think that's how it works. So why do they have six? Well, Isaiah tells us that uh, two of those wings were covering their feet, two of them were covering their eyes. Why? Because 
the holiness of God was so significant that they couldn't even look or stand in his presence. Now notice what Jesus says here. Go back to verse 10. Look at the verses. The words are important. For I tell you that there are angels, the angels of the little ones, in heaven also see the face of my Father in heaven. So you have these little ones who have angels that are in some way that we don't fully understand ascribed to them, and those angels can actually see the face of God. So you have Isaiah 6 angels that can't stand or even see the face of God. You have Matthew 18 angels that are, uh, that are somehow more privileged in their position than these angels because they can see the face of God. And notice what Jesus says about them. Those are your angels. Those are the angels that have been ascribed to you. So what is Jesus' point here? That there's something about us as little ones. There's something about us as those who, who humble ourselves, come into the family of God, come into the kingdom of God, whereby we have these angels, these significant angels ascribed to us. In other words, what Jesus is saying is there's value and dignity and worth that is ascribed to those of us who identify as followers of Jesus. That there's something about those of us who are the little ones, those of us who have been uh, humbled, those of us who have been welcomed and received into the kingdom of heaven, that we now have a, a dignity and value and worth in God's eyes so much so to the degree that he would actually ascribe these angels to us. Now, I want you just to pause for a second and think about all the ways that our world and our culture spits ideas at us of who we are. Uh, so you, you think of like a kind of like a pure naturalistic worldview. A pure naturalistic worldview would say that there is nothing special or unique about you as a, as a human person. That the only thing that separates you and me as human beings from the rest of the animal kingdom is the fact that we have frontal lobes and opposable thumbs. That we can text and eat at the same time. That's it. Otherwise, you're just a slightly more evolved animal. That's all you are. You have no inherent dignity, value, or worth. Uh, you have like new age philosophy or new age spirituality, new age ideas that talks about your consciousness in terms of it being like a, a drip in the ocean of consciousness, right? All of our consciousness just kind of flows into one river. It's going downstream into this giant ocean and you are just one drop in that ocean. And when you die, your consciousness just goes into that river and flows into that stream and it's bleh. Or you think of just like the secular humanistic worldview that we live in, the Western world, the, the capitalistic world that we live in, that says what? That your life sucks, and if you would buy a cup of coffee, go on a particular kind of vacation, make a few more bucks, have a slightly larger house, that somehow by doing any of those things or all of those things, that your life would be better. All of a sudden, you would experience fulfillment, self-actualization. Oh, I've arrived. Jesus is saying, eh, to all of that. He's saying what gives you dignity, value, and worth is that you become like a little one. And when you become like a little one, you have so much value in my eyes that I actually ascribe the highest of angels to you. You're not angels yourself. You're, you're actually even higher than angels, that the angels come and they serve you. In other words, what Jesus is trying to show us, what he's trying to articulate to us, is that we have value. You have value. That you don't have to do something to make yourself into something. You don't have to try and achieve something. That you're, you're not just a slightly more evolved animal than all the other animals. That there's something about you 
that reflects the very essence of who God is. As Genesis 1 and 2 language uses, you are made in the image and likeness of God. And he loves you and he cares about you and he holds you in great esteem. It's good news. I mean, when you think of the moment we find ourselves in 2020, I feel like I talk about this every week, like the year just keeps getting crazier and crazier. Like Donald Trump has COVID-19. Like you just can't make this stuff up, right? Like, I mean, pray for him, all that stuff. I'm not making any political comments. I feel like I have to say that every time I say anything about anything these days. But, but it's just a crazy year. And I have found in this season as somebody who has the privilege of helping give oversight to our church family, like I have never dealt with as many intense pastoral counseling situations as I'm dealing with right now. I mean, even today, in the lobby, having conversations with people about hurt in their home, brokenness in their home, you know, tears out in the lobby. I've got marriages that we're working to keep together. We've got people that are just struggling. And if we're honest, 2020, there's like, it's like squeezing us. It's just squeezing every last drop out of us. And I think if we're like honest to the core, and this probably extends far beyond 2020. There's been days, maybe weeks, seasons, where you're just like, I'm done. I tap. Can't do it anymore. If we drill down even a little bit deeper, I'm going to just assume that the amount of people that are going to listen to this or hearing this, some of us are, we've thought about ending it. Maybe even taking our own life. We're hopeless. We feel like there is no hope. We feel that life has no meaning. We've thought about relapsing just to escape. We thought about doing something. Just We just got to get out of this. I just need an escape for just a moment. I want you to hear something this morning. Your life is not hopeless. You are not worthless. You are not purposelessness. I don't even know if that makes any sense. I don't think it does, but you know what I mean. In the eyes of Jesus, you have value. You have purpose. You have meaning. He cares about you. You have dignity and worth as an image bearer of God, as one of God's kids, one of these little ones who he welcomes into his family, you are elevated above even the angels, friends. Because of what Jesus has done, when you humble yourself to become like one of these little ones, you recognize you have need, and Jesus, the rescuer, comes in and rescues you. And you get to experience the love of Jesus, the love of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And I can't think of anything more powerful in this moment right now than that truth. Jesus wants you to know, he wants us to know that, that those in his kingdom, those in his family, we have value. And the rest of this text, he is going to articulate the degree to which God values us. He's going to expose to us, show us the very heart of God. He's going to do it in the form of a parable. The parable is a, it's a small story that communicates a big truth. And Jesus used parables often to teach to us the things of the kingdom, the things of God, to show us what God is like, because it's like a way that we can understand. He's going to give us word pictures to help us understand things that are otherwise so far beyond our ability to grasp that he brings it down. This is, again, just a picture of his grace, that he brings it down, puts it on the bottom shelf for us so that we can pick it up and enjoy it. Okay, so you ready for this? This is good stuff. I'm super fired up about this. Look at what Jesus says in verse 12. Actually, before we get to verse 12, 
Notice this in your Bible, okay? If you have a Bible in front of you, I'll just make a quick comment here. You'll notice it goes from verse 10 to verse 12. At the end of verse 10, there's a small number 11, at least in my Bible, with a footnote. And the reason for that is because uh, Bible commentators and Bible scholars, there's some debate around whether what would have been in verse 11 was actually in the earliest manuscript. So rather than put it in, they actually just made a note there saying that there's quite a bit of debate around this, but the earliest manuscripts did not have this verse in there. And so this is uh, a way of just showing that uh, the, the Bible scholars, those who help translate the Bible and put together the Bible for us, do so with the utmost integrity. They don't just try and slide one past the goalie. They, they make everything available to us. But Jesus jumps into this parable, and look at what he says in verse 12. He says this, what do you think? Okay, so if you have all, like if you are one of these little ones and you are so valuable in the eyes of God, what do you think? What do you think he's like? Now look at what he says. He says, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? Now, let me just help us understand this for a second, because I, I don't know about you, but when I came to this text, like, I don't know anything about sheep. I don't know anything about shepherds. I basically don't know anything about anything. And so I had to kind of pick some of this stuff up. First century context, a shepherd who owned a flock of sheep, this would have been like a small business owner. And these sheep would have reflected the assets that he owned. So he owns 100 sheep. That represents his assets. And 99 of them are with them, with him rather, and one of them leaves. One of them goes off wandering. Now, if you're a small business owner, which of the two, you know, you've got two options here. You've got the one or you got the 99. Which of the two uh, has more value to you? I mean, in, in like math world, 99. 99 is worth more than one. So uh, a smart shepherd, and this is what a first century shepherd would have done, first century shepherd would have stayed with the 99 and would have paid somebody to go after the one. So when Jesus asks this, like it, it seems obvious, right? Like you read this, you're like, yeah, of course, we'd leave the 99 to go for the one. You wouldn't. You wouldn't actually leave the 99 to go for the one. In fact, a shepherd wouldn't have left the 99 to go for the one. So if you're hearing this as a first century hearer, you're like, no, 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 Jesus, you're, you're actually getting it wrong. But don't miss what Jesus is doing here. He's painting a picture for us of what God is like. He's saying God as a shepherd is different than every other shepherd. God as a God is different than all the other gods, all the other religions, all the other ideologies. Every other religion, every other ideology, every idea in the marketplace is all about that one sheep having to figure it out for himself. But God in Christ is so different. He goes after the one. He leaves the 99 and goes after the one. It's this beautiful picture. And so God is the shepherd, but who's the sheep, right? Or the sheep. Now, now what do you know about sheep? Well, again, I don't know much about sheep, but here's what I do know. Sheep are dumb, right? We're dumb. Sheep are dumb. Sheep goes wandering off, gets lost, doesn't stay. Now, now if, you, if you think about a sheep, do you think of like a fierce animal? Like if you were out on a hike out in the woods and you come across a sheep, are you scared in that moment? Probably not. Are you going to run away from it? Probably not. No fangs, no talons, you know, no, no claws. It's not, you know, like we, we've been watching, our family's been watching kind of a guilty pleasure this week. We've been watching the Jurassic Park movies, like one every night. They're like just terrible movies. I'm like, I don't remember these being that bad. They're really bad. I'm like, when were they going to figure out that like the whole island human dinosaur thing is just not a good combination? Like somebody stopped the madness. But if you put a sheep on the dinosaur island, it's not going to go well for the sheep. Right? So you see a sheep, you're not going to run from it, you're going to run towards it because it's a little bit chubby, it's a little bit fluffy, it's wearing a wool hoodie, you want to pet it, you want to ride it, because it's a sheep, it's cute. I mean, I don't even know if I've ever seen a sheep, but I think if I saw a sheep, I'd want to ride it. 
but I'm not scared of it. Why? Because a sheep is defenseless. It's vulnerable. And so Jesus is painting this picture for us, and I want you to see it, of, of a sheep, of us wandering away from the flock. And, and because of our wander away from the flock, we are vulnerable. We're exposed. We're in danger. Something bad might happen to us. And the shepherd comes looking for us. He comes pursuing us. He leaves the 99. He leaves his valuable assets to come looking for the one. And what Jesus is wanting to do with this parable is he's wanting us to frame our understanding of our relationship with God just like this. In fact, in John chapter 10, John chapter 10, verse 11, in John chapter 10, there's a series of I am statements that Jesus makes, statements about himself. And again, these are like metaphors or mini parables. And in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He calls himself the good shepherd, and he says about himself, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And what Jesus is saying, if you take these two ideas and put them together, is that even though you've wandered, even though you've gone away from the flock, even though you're defenseless, hopeless, helpless, the good shepherd's going to come after you. When you think of a sh- the job of a shepherd, the job of a shepherd wasn't a, it wasn't a prestigious job. It was noble, but it wasn't prestigious. It was humble. It was lowly. You think of Jesus, our good shepherd. What does he do? He gets up off the throne, right? He's seated in the heavenlies at the right hand of God the Father, and he gets up off the throne, and he comes from heaven to earth. He humbles himself, and he enters into our world. He comes as a little baby. He has to learn to walk and talk, and he has to learn to be potty trained. Think about this. The God of the universe humbles himself, enters into this world. Why? To pursue us. Because he loves us. Because he cares about us. And he has to go looking for us. And just like the shepherd would have to walk for miles, climb hills, go through valleys, fend off predators. What does Jesus do? He comes after us. Think about the journey from heaven to earth. Not in kilometers, but in the spiritual sense. The, the, the real cost to Jesus to pursue you and to pursue me. It was so great. It was so significant. And when the shepherd would find the sheep, it's not as if he would say, okay, sheep, time to go back. If that's all it took, the sheep never would have left. Sheep are dumb. Sheep are stubborn. Sheep have no idea what's going on. What does the shepherd have to do? He literally has to carry the sheep. He has to pick up the sheep, put it on his back, and walk it back to the family. What does Jesus do, friends? He picks us up, not physically, but spiritually. He literally picks up the cross and carries the cross on his back, the cross that represents your sin, it represents your shame, it represents your guilt, it represents your brokenness. Do you know what the cross represents? It represents our wander. And Jesus picks up our wander. He picks us up and he puts us on his back, and he takes us back home. He welcomes us back into the family. He welcomes us back into the fold because he loves us. He cares about you, and he cares about me. And there's there's just this beautiful reality that we have to wrestle with. Some of you have to wrestle with this. 
In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus is speaking to a very specific crowd. He's speaking to those in the kingdom. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a very similar parable to this. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is very clear who he's speaking about when he speaks about wandering sheep. He's he's speaking about lost sheep, sheep that don't know him yet. But in Matthew chapter 18, he's speaking to a very particular sheep. He's speaking to the sheep that know him but have wandered away. They know him. They've heard his voice. They've responded to his call. But something's happened and they've decided they can no longer be a part of the family. They need distance. I don't know how long you've been a part of a church before. Maybe you're watching online and you've never been a part of a church before. But here's here's the truth about churches. They suck. I love this church. I love West Village Church with all my heart. But this church sucks. You know why it sucks? Because sheep bite. I got sheep bite marks all over my body. And so do you. Do you know why? Because the church is full of wandering sheep who Jesus has brought back. And wandering sheep are sinful sheep who make mistakes and who are broken. I hear this all the time. People come, they're new, they start getting involved or whatever, and they'll say things to me like this. They'll say, oh, we love West Village. West Village is an amazing church. And you know what? It is. You guys are amazing. West Village is amazing. I love, I love this church. I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not disagreeing with that. But I always throw a warning out there. We are going to disappoint you. We are going to fail you. I am going to fail you. I am going to disappoint you. So don't fix your eyes on the sheep. Don't look at the sheep. Look at Jesus, the shepherd. Because he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never fail you. But some of you have been bitten by sheep. And you're scared. You're wandering. And you might even be in here and you're wandering. You can wander sitting in here. You can wander. You can be here in in body. But there's something about you that's just, you're going to keep the rest of the 99 over here because you're so afraid of being hurt again. Something has happened that's caused your heart to not trust, to not be able to give yourself fully. And I want you to hear the heart of Jesus. He loves you. He's coming after you. He's pursuing you. He's... He's going to lay his life down for you and you're going to wander and he's going to come after you and you're going to wander and he's going to come after you. But I want you to hear something else, church. We live in a city that is full of wandering sheep. We live in a city that are, it's full. There's two kinds of wandering sheep in our city, right? There's, there's those who are wandering that they don't even know God loves them and wants relationship with them. But there are so many people in our city who've been bit, hurt by sheep, and they're just wandering. And our call as the church is to be the kind of people that are going to lovingly pursue lost sheep in the same way that our shepherd has loved us, in the same way that our shepherd has given himself for us. He then calls us to be the kind of people that are going to go out and pursue, to humbly pursue, to humbly give of ourselves, to give of our lives, to welcome the one back into the ninety-nine. But Jesus wants us to hear that this matters deeply to him. This matters deeply to the very heart of God. And then look at what he says next. Verses 13 and 14, Jesus says this, And if he finds it, 
Truly, I tell you, he is happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Verse 13 again, if he find, uh, and if he finds it, if the shepherd finds the wandering sheep, truly I tell you that he is happier, that the, uh, he's happier about that one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. Let me ask you a question. When you think of Jesus, when you think about his face, when you think about how he feels about you, what kind of thoughts come to your mind? Like if you were to just, you know, thought experiment right now, close your eyes and just imagine the face of God. When he looks at your life, if he was honestly to just look, not like the, the life you put out on the internet, right? Not the life you put out uh, when you come to the Sunday gathering, uh, you know, and you're kind of like, hey, everything's awesome all the time, right? Not that, not that life, but like the real life, the, the real you. Like when no one's looking, the things you think, the mistakes you... Like if, if Jesus was to... If he was just to see that, like all laid bare, what would his face be? What would his countenance be? How would he feel? What would his emotional state be? Uh, my suspicion is that for some of you, that thought scares you. That you hear this voice in your head that God is going to be frustrated. He's going to be disappointed with you. He's going to look at you and say, what's wrong with you? Why can't you get it together? I told you it was going to go that way. You feel like a failure as a parent, as a spouse, as a son or daughter, as a worker, as a human being. And you look back over your life with such regret and you think that God looks back with you and judges you. That he's up in heaven with his arms crossed and his brow furrowed, pointing his wagging, accusing finger in your face. And why can't you do it right? Pardon my French. Why can't you get your crap together? Look at what Jesus says. Look at what he says. Verse 13, if he finds it, if he finds it, if he finds the little one, if he finds the wandering sheep, I tell you, he is what? What is he, church? He's happy. You notice what Jesus doesn't say, right? He doesn't say if he finds it, he holds them account for all that they've done. If he finds that wandering sheep, he has a long list of all the ways in which the, the sheep have failed him and he wants answers. He doesn't say he punishes the sheep. He doesn't beat the sheep. He doesn't yell at the sheep. I'm yelling at you right now, but it's a yell of passion, not anger. He's happy. He's happy. He delights in your return. He doesn't look at your life and think, man, why can't you get it right? Why didn't you do it the way you were supposed to do it? Now, hey, don't, get me, don't hear me wrong here. Right? I'm, not, I'm not preaching a gospel of cheap grace. God's desire is for us to follow him and love him and serve him. And just like a parent whose kids are going wayward, when we are going wayward, God's heart is for us to return. He longs for us. He wishes we would smarten up. He certainly does. But he... He is overjoyed when we return. 
Do you believe? Do you believe that when Jesus looks, our good shepherd, when he looks at your life, is joy? Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. What brought you back? It's not that you started to figure things out. It's not that you started to check off the list. It's not that you started coming to church stuff more often and doing churchy things and being a better person and loving your neighbor and all that. That's not what brings him joy. What brings him joy? That you were lost and he brought you back. The joy is in the work of Jesus, not in the work of the sheep. If the sheep was left on its own, it'd still be out, out for wander. The joy is that Jesus gives his life for us. Jesus lays down his life, his body, his blood shed for us and then we receive the righteousness of Christ and our Heavenly Father looks down on us and just as he says of Jesus at his baptism, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, he looks over his family, his sheep who were wandering and brought back home. And he says, you are my children with whom I'm well pleased. Friends, I don't know where you're at today. I have no idea where you're at, where you're sitting, where you're hearing this, what's going on. But my suspicion is at some point, in some way, in some shape, in some form, there is a part of your life that is in wonder. There's a part of your life that, yes, you're here, yes, you love Jesus, yes, you're serving him, but there's a part of your life that is in wonder, and you're wondering if you've made some colossal mistakes. You have regret, you have guilt, you have shame. Or maybe you're hearing this and you're in complete wonder. You didn't know that there's a God out there who loves you and wants to know you. Hear Jesus' words today. You are loved. You are loved and no matter how far you run and no matter how hard you try to escape his grace, he will always run further and faster to hunt you down. And the fact, listen to me, the fact that you are hearing this right now is evidence that he is in pursuit of you. Because he wants you to know that he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your unending grace. That there is, there is no thing we can do that can disqualify us from your loving pursuit of us. I pray for us right now that we would stop running away. we would hear your humble pursuit of us and we would stop running from you and start running towards you knowing that we will be, be received with great love. Spirit of God, would you press that into our hearts, we pray. And all God's children said, amen. I'm going to move us into a, a time of response in the way that uh, we have traditionally responded at West Village and are doing our best to continue to do so because we think all of these responses are uh, good responses to the gospel, to the message we have just heard. One of the ways, which has already been talked about, is giving. Uh, we believe that Jesus is loving, gracious, and kind, and uh, he gives. And so we give in accordance to the grace that we've been 
uh, that we have received. Uh, but one of the ways that we respond is in communion. So if you have your communion supplies, take them out. If you're at home watching along, grab some com communion supplies and take them out. What I want to do is go to John chapter 10 just to kind of prepare our hearts for communion. John chapter 10 is uh, the passage of Scripture where Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd. But I want to read a few more uh, verses out of John chapter 10 just to help fill this out a little bit more. So here's what Jesus says in John chapter 10, picking up in verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this pen. I must bring them in also. Uh, they too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. There's this reality to the gospel that it's not just for us, right? It's for our whole city. It's for our whole city. And then he says this in verse 17, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay my life down only to take it up again. In other words, here Jesus is talking about his death on the cross and his resurrection right after. And then verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. What Jesus is saying here, and it's a good word for us this morning, is that as the good shepherd, as we've already heard from Jesus, that he humbly pursues us and he lovingly lays down his life to bring us back into the fold. And the way that he does this is in the giving up of his life. He lays down his life. He has his body broken and his blood shed for our sin, for our wander. And the reason we want to take communion each and every Sunday is to be reminded not of our sin, but of the grace of God. And this communion that we're going to participate in here, this is, this is ultimately a picture of our shepherd's loving pursuit of us. Uh, so just as we are instructed by Jesus to do, I invite you to take the cracker, which represents the broken body of Jesus, and eat it in remembrance of him. And just as we've been instructed to do, encourage you to take the, the juice, this juice which represents the shed blood of Jesus, shed for our sins. Take this in remembrance of him. And Jesus, in this moment, through this act, may we remember your love and your grace and your mercy for us. We thank you for laying down your life, for allowing your body to be broken and your blood to be shed that we might receive the forgiveness of sins. Press that deep into our heart, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. And then the last way that we respond, and whether you're at home or 